This podcast was supported by Grant 2016 MUMUK001, awarded by the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Department of Justice. Welcome, everyone, to the Reflections on Research podcast. I'm your host, Mike Geringer. I'm the Director of Research and Evaluation at Mentor, the National Mentoring Partnership. Uh, Just as a reminder, this episode is brought to you as part of our work on the National Mentoring Resource Center, or the NMRC, as you'll hear it referred to throughout the episode. And we are the nation's leading source of training and technical assistance for youth mentoring programs. The center is sponsored through a cooperative agreement with the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, or OJJDP, who has a long history of investing in youth mentoring research and programming, including the study that we're going to be discussing today. Uh, We certainly thank them for their generous support of both cutting-edge research and projects like the NMRC that allow that research to reach a wider audience. And if this is your first time listening to an episode of Reflections on Research, please note that you can always find new episodes of this series on the NMRC website at nationalmentoringresourcecenter.org. And you can always get the scoop on these and other work that the center is doing by subscribing to our monthly e-newsletter. And that's easy to do right there on the website. So we have some very cutting edge research to talk about today. I'm very excited about it. So let's just dive into it and meet our two guests for today. So first up, we have Dr. David Dubois, and David is a professor within the School of Public Health at the University of Illinois, Chicago. His research examines the contribution of protective factors, particularly self-esteem and mentoring relationships, to resilience and holistic positive development and on translating knowledge in this area into the design of effective programs. To that end, David is most well-known in the mentoring field for his meta-analytical work and for co-editing the two editions of the Handbook of Youth Mentoring. David serves as the chair for the National Mentoring Resource Center Research Board, overseeing the work of 25 leading scholars and their efforts on the project to review what the research tells us about the world of youth mentoring. So thank you for joining us today, David. Great to be here, Mike. Also joining us today is Dr. Carla Herrera, an independent consultant with decades of experience evaluating a wide variety of mentoring and youth development programs. Carla is widely known for her time at public-private ventures, where she was a part of some of the most foundational research that this field has, including the evaluation of Big Brothers Big Sisters' school-based mentoring model and the seminal role of risk study, which examined the ability of youth mentoring programs to effectively serve youth with elevated Uh, levels of both individual and environmental risk. For the past two years, Carla has also served in as associate chair for that NMRC research board, where she has worked alongside David and others to spearhead, among other things, uh, the development of our measurement guidance toolkit, which if you're not familiar with that, is a a really great resource and a source of uh, kind of valid and reliable measurement tools for youth mentoring programs. So welcome, Carla. Thanks, Mike. So today we're going to talk about a study that you have been working on, uh, funded by OJJDP, and uh, I think 
it really has the potential to shape how those of us who work in the field think about youth mentoring and, and what this work is all about. So I'm very excited for you to share this with our listeners, because I think you've tried to answer a question who to this point has been pretty elusive in our field. And that is, if we mentor a bunch of children, a bunch of adolescents, what does society get out of that years and years later in terms of the adults that those young people become? And that's a very meaty question, and there's a lot to discuss about it. So I want to start off by talking a little bit, David, about just longitudinal or long-term research in general. It seems that compared to other fields like medicine or public health, education, uh, mentoring doesn't have a lot of long-term research on the impact of this service, on the trajectory of young people's lives. And that's always surprised me. I think our society thinks of mentoring as this kind of wise guidance that uh, you know takes place over many years. And it seems logical that we would expect to see long-term benefits from that kind of support. Uh, that would really change lives in a meaningful way long-term. Can you talk a little bit about why we don't see more longitudinal research about the benefits of mentoring? Uh, are there previous efforts that that our audience should be aware of to kind of answer that question? I, I think, you know, part of the, the, the background for this is that mentoring is very much positioned out in the um, community context, as opposed to a lot of programs, preventive interventions that come out of academia. And there, there's often, you know, quite a bit of, um, you know, kind of initial, you know, intention and follow through on looking at those long-term effects and, and the, in the funding they seek often, you know, will be, you know, in line with that. Whereas mentoring has enjoyed uh, a lot of support, uh, but mostly from, um, foundations and uh, and also OJJDP, but those are not long-term funding mechanisms. They're generally intended to say, okay, in the relative short frame, because we're kind of applied oriented, we want to inform the, the mentoring program funding we're doing, for example, if you're OJJDP um, or if you're a foundation, should we be making investments in mentoring grants? And uh, there, you know, is a is a, an interest in getting that answer as quickly as possible. And so the studies have been uh, predominantly, uh, you know, looking over relatively short t- time horizons, often out to uh, either the minimum length of a relationship, such as in Big Brothers, Big Sisters, one year, or more commonly a little bit after that. So somewhere out in the 15 to 18 month range, as in, as in the study we'll talk about today in the initial um uh, the initial um, research that was done. And so it's really, a, 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 I think, a, a serious limitation in our knowledge base, as, as you were alluding to, Mike, in that uh, many mentoring interventions, certainly Big Brothers Big Sisters is emblematic of this, are intended not to be short-term. They're intended to have a, a long time horizon, not just in the in the impact that carries forward, but in the actual intervention. So you're, you're, you're not only you're not following the effects forward, you're not even getting the full um, dose, if you want to use that kind of medical model term, of the intervention. So these wonderful relationships I think we've all heard about, you know, who, who work within the mentoring space that go on many years. I was just at a program uh, that we're doing some work with where, uh, you know, the, the, the gentleman there, uh, 
who had mentored a, a young person, you really, since like age seven was just in his wedding, right? You know, so those are wonderful stories and we don't have the data because, you know, to, to not only follow to those, get those outcomes, but even to get a good full picture of what the dose is. And of course, all relationships and the majority are, are in, mo- in most programs are not going to have, you know, the super extended timeframes, but certainly a large percentage uh, will have more than, than the time frame that has uh, been looked at um, in the research um, thus far, and so there you have it. You know, we don't we don't know very much um, that we could shake a stick at in, in a way. If you put me in front of, say, you know, Congress and said, "Testify to me about you know structured youth mentoring programs uh, and what we know about their long term." Uh, consequences for young people's uh, development moving into adulthood, I would say we really don't know a whole lot. And what we do know gives us some reason for pause. And that, and I'll stop here. And I know you don't want to have the whole segment here, Mike, on this topic, but it is important context, I think. And it's a great question to start with. Uh, OJGDP uh, has made an investment uh, or did make an investment over at least a couple funding cycles, specifically for folks to take existing data and try to, to uh, do long-term follow-up. And we were um, one of those uh, grantees, as you mentioned, and the others um, uh, you know, are also, uh, I think, going to be really important contributions to the field. Michael Karcher is an example. His SMILE, Study of Mentoring and Learning Environment, School-Based Mentoring, He's following up, uh, and, and I think just in the last stages of finalizing his report for OJJDP, and I really, you know, I don't want to steal his thunder, so and, and don't know where the late uh, things have landed, but I, those findings will be very important. Uh, and also, um, Tom Keller at Portland State and uh, Jennifer Blakesley, uh, the My Life program. Um, for youth aging out of foster care. In that case, they do have the, the, the results out and, and there's some encouraging evidence of, of positive benefits uh, on some areas uh, that are quite noteworthy policy-wise, such as uh, arrest uh, during adulthood. So there you have it. You know, that's not the full landscape, but that's it's, it's fairly sparse. And what is there is not uh, so clear as to uh, lead one to want to make any uh any assertions about uh, what we might, you know, uh, want to under- think we understand about this? No, thank you, David. That's uh, kind of an excellent summary of kind of where we stand on this issue of, you know, have we researched the the long-term impact of mentoring? And as with many things in life, I think it's a, sounds like it's a follow the money <laughs> situation where folks just have not invested in that kind of research to date. And uh, the good news is we're going to have Michael on later in the year, Michael Karcher, and and uh, also uh, Tom and Jennifer Blakesley on later in this podcast series to talk about those studies. So uh, hopefully we'll be breaking plenty of new ground about uh, what we know about long-term impact here over the course of this series. Carla, I want to bring you in here. You know, David mentioned that the impetus for your work here was OJJDP literally requesting it and, and making resources available to to do that. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about how the current project that you guys are doing came about? I think folks will be fascinated to know kind of, um, you know, how how you got this idea and how you approached your partners in this to make this happen. 
Sure. Well, this was a project that David and I both, but particularly David, had wanted to conduct for many, many years for exactly the reasons you you all both outlined. Practitioners see every day that mentoring is a life-changing experience for many youth, but as David noted, the field really has very little rigorous data to support this experience. So the original PPV study of BBBS mentoring was so important in the field and was the first big randomized study of community-based mentoring. It It was also conducted long enough ago that we could look into critical long-term outcomes like college attendance and crime as an adult. So it was the perfect study to conduct this kind of follow-up on. So in 2013 is when that OJJDP request for proposals came out that David noted earlier. Um, They were particularly interested in this kind of long-term follow-up work. And BBBS was extremely supportive of this research and gave us access to the original study's data to enable us to link up what we knew about the youth and families back in the mid-1990s to the paths that these youth took over the next 20 years. So we knew that our work on the project would be tough. Like finding any youth 20 years later is really challenging. But finding youth from families that face the kinds of economic challenges that these families faced, including moving around a lot, was going to be really hard. And in fact, it's, it's, it's really been a labor of love with our super talented project manager, Julius Rivera, and at least at least 30 fabulous students from David's university over the past several years searching for and catching up with these families. Well, thank you, Carl. I mean, that sounds incredibly complicated and time-consuming. Um, I think our audience would be interested to hear a little bit about how you just approached the kind of detective work of finding all of these people. I'm not sure other than, you know, Facebook or something, if I would know where to, to even turn. Could you talk a little bit maybe about, you know, how you found these folks and, and how you went about kind of contacting them and seeing if they were interested in in being part of something that, you know, build off what they did when they were, you know, a child? The studies following up with the entire group of 1,136 youth who participated in the original PPV study and for whom we were able to locate their original data. So there were two, two youth from the original sample had withdrawn from the study. So about half of these youth had been randomly assigned to a treatment group that could be matched with the Big Brothers Big Sisters mentor, and half were randomly assigned to a control group that wouldn't be offered a mentor through the duration of the study. We made efforts to collect data for all of these participants from three different sources. So first we collected records from the National Student Clearinghouse on college attendance for effectively all of the original sample. Second, we collected adult crime records from Accurant, which is a repository of public records for all but about 50 of the original sample. And third, the tough part, we attempted to survey the original participants by contacting them using a whole host of sources. So public phone records, Facebook, parents for whom we had contact information from back in the 90s, um, and emergency contacts provided to us from the original study. Um, To date, we found 505 participants, so almost half of the original participants, um, 313 have completed the adult survey, which once you remove those we know are deceased or ineligible, for example, because they're incarcerated, this is about a 30% response rate. That may sound pretty low, but for us, every single person that we were able to bring into that survey, we, we gave a few hurrahs. I mean, it was, it was, it was really tough going and, and we're still, we're still moving on it actually. 
Well, I'm, I mean, I'm fascinated that you found even half of them. Um, Actually better than, than that. And I, I neglected Carla with your, your great preparation on this to, to circle back with you on that. I may have not quite said it right in our report. Clearly it, we've made contact with about half <laughs> we've located, I would say, um, with great confidence, right, that we found them and we, we were calling the right telephone number, we're mailing the right, the letter to the right uh, address. Um, somewhere I would put in the maybe 90% is too too optimistic, but but somewhere up in that range. It turns out in today's society, and I've talked to survey research professionals who can speak to this with authority, you know, it's much more difficult to get people to pick up the phone uh, and to, you know, to, to answer a call, you know, um, and we, you can leave a message, right. But even there, you know, uh, the, the phone is almost becoming a, a, a you know, an antiquated uh, communication tool. And so, you know, we certainly went to emails where we could get them. They're just less available. And um, the parents having not necessarily gotten the memo about, current technology trends, um, we're quite willing, uh, much more than the youth to, to pick up the phone. And, and as Carla alluded to, we did, you know, get to them and, uh, number of youth that way. Um, uh, and also through Facebook, believe it or not, sending, you know, private messages, not to, you know, kind of, you know, uh, bathe their privacy unduly, but, uh, that's, that's been a, another mechanism. So, uh, we have really, I think, you know, located folks, but getting them to and within the bounds of research ethics, not harassing them, um, uh, you know, getting them to really uh, talk with us uh, has been challenging. And I and we uh, it, and I would say of you know some of those they do say no, but the bigger issue has been actually getting a conversation. Yeah, thank thank you, David. That's helpful. Um, I mean, I guess I'm even more impressed you're able to find you know ninety ish percent of them. Um, and I kind of love the anecdote that it was usually their parents that were more accessible because they still had a, a landline <laughs> in this day and age. That's increasingly rare. Um, David, I wanted to ask you a little bit about you've mentioned this survey that you came up with to kind of uh, where you could get them to, to kind of interface with you. You wanted these folks now that they're adults to to tell you kind of how life is is going could you tell our, our audience a little bit about what you asked in that survey and kind of how you chose what to, to ask them about? Uh, certainly. And Carla, I certainly welcome your, your uh, you know, adding on this because it certainly was a, was a joint effort uh, really trying to think through how to make use of uh, what we knew to really keep a response rate as high as we could needed to be a relatively brief survey and it was it was done online for the you know unless folks you know weren't in a position that they could or wanted to do that but the vast majority that was how it was done and i would say generally took 20 to 25 minutes we thought that was kind of from what folks we consulted in our own experience where you know where we wanted to kind of not go past that so we of course asked about um their recollections about um the um their their mentoring right that they've had um and there was many reasons for that. One of which was uh, we weren't even sure when the relationships ended in many cases, right? Because the original study only went to 18 months. So um, uh, that was one of several, I won't enumerate all of them, but there were several reasons to ask them about their, their, 
uh, what, what they recall um, about their, their mentoring relationships um, in terms of, uh, you know, factors such as that. And, uh, and I'll give one other quick example. If they were in the control group, they were, there was a wait list control. So after the 18 months of their study participation, they were eligible to be matched. So we wanted to know, matched meaning, you know, paired with the big brother, big sister. So we wanted to see if that in fact had happened. So, so a certain portion of the survey was, was about that um, information. And then we really tried to cover the waterfront of uh, outcomes that would seem to be important for understanding how people are doing in adulthood. These, these folks were generally in their mid-30s from, a perspective, from multiple perspectives, if you will. Certainly, from a you know policymaker perspective, there's a lot of interest in outcomes such as employment, involvement um, in the justice system with the rest, um, post-secondary education uh, participation and, and degree completion, uh, substance use clear, clearly a, a you know a, a right at the forefront of, of you know c- contemporary uh, you know social issues, but we also wanted to get at, at, at a wider range of variables that. Uh, often don't attract quite as much attention uh, from 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 necessarily the the, you know, the frontline policy audience, but we have good reason to to uh, you know view them as important from a variety of perspectives. So that was uh, you know a whole category of social emotional well being measures. So we asked about grit, for example, right? Um, we'll hear more about that as we discuss. Uh, things of it, that kind of stick to itiveness variable that seems to be an important, really important soft skill in terms of what the data are suggesting and some of the uh, the shorter term research. Depression, uh, sim- depressive symptoms, uh, positive emotional well being, positive social well being. Are there relationships, uh, ones that they find rewarding and healthy? Thinking that having had a good uh, experience. Uh, in, in a mentoring relationship uh, to model off of, perhaps also build some skills, does that uh, translate potentially in some measurable way to, um, to you, you know, relationships uh, moving into uh, other stages of uh, development? And uh, so, uh, you know, in, in, in other outcomes as well, but um, those were the um, those were the, the, the main ones, uh, you know, that you'd point to, um, and also just kind of problem behaviors, even if, as I mentioned, but uh, substance use, but others that have been involved in the original study. Thank you, David. Uh, that's really helpful. And I think I appreciate the fact that in your survey, it seems like you tried to both address policymaker concerns. So where might mentoring save society money for, you know, perhaps in keeping, you know, people out of a a life of crime and jail. And, you know, we all know how expensive that can be. But also you looked at things that are kind of quality of life things. And I've often found myself wondering over the years if if mentoring doesn't have a a sweet spot within that, right, around just helping people be more well-adjusted, happier, able to relate other, you know, to others better. So I, I appreciate the fact that you cast a wide net because, as you just said, a, a service like Big Brothers Big Sisters is trying to be fairly holistic in what they're they're offering young people through the mentoring. I 
I don't want to keep our audience in in suspense any longer now that we've kind of explained what you did and tracking these folks down and, and kind of looking both at records and the results of this, this survey. Um, what did you guys find? Uh, were these adults uh, happy and healthy? Did they struggle? Uh, you know, did the ones who had a mentor when they were kids, are they different as adults than, than those who perhaps did not? All right. And there's a few tentacles to this study. And so we're trying to figure out uh, in our kind of pre, pre-session uh, meeting how to organize these. And so I think we're going to start with those records-based outcomes that we uh, heard Carla describe. Uh, and as a reminder, those are uh, from the National Student Clearinghouse, which is a great resource for programs to think about in terms of accessing information um, with appropriate you know, uh, champ, you know, privacy safeguards and, and so forth, but it's not an undoable hurdle. I'll just put a pitch in there. Uh, and it's not unduly expensive. Um, uh, records of uh, whether they attended post-secondary education was one of our measures. And the second measure was, did, was there a record of them receiving a post-secondary degree? And then we also, um, uh, based on the uh, arrest record data, that was, you know, for adulthood is, is public information by and large. We have uh, three measures, whether or not they had some type of kind of property-related offense. Uh, so it didn't involve kind of directly harming another individual physically, uh, you know, stealing, uh, vandalism, that sort of thing. And then uh, a, um, a person-oriented offense where there was, uh, you know, uh, some type of um, direct um direct uh, assault or, or um, endangerment of, of a child, all sorts of a range of things that were more directly domestic violence and so forth. So uh, we had, and then we counted up also the number. So not just yes or no, did they have either of those types of uh, arrests, uh, but also just in general, uh, how many, if we counted them up. And so um, with regard to that, and this is going to take a little bit of explanation. We first did what are considered the most conservative and in many p- folks view the, the, the appropriate kind of bottom line analyses when you have a randomized controlled trial study. Um, it's called intent to treat. You say, you know, I just want to know, uh, we know these groups were, we have good reason to believe they were absolutely equal on everything else at the point you flip the coin and half got opportunity to get a mentor and half did not. So uh, those analyses are highly complicated here. Why, you might ask? Well, remember uh, the reference earlier to it was a wait list control design. So at 18 months, all of a sudden, those in the non-mentor group were uh, up ineligible for uh, being matched with the big brother, big sister. And we only have partial data on that. I'm happy to elaborate why, um, but briefly, it's because of our survey response rate and only a, a, a subset of agencies had records historically to, to let us know where we couldn't get survey data. But, we, but the best we can tell, it looks like about 25% of the control group did ultimately get a, a big brother or big sister. And if you want to add to the mix, uh, at the point, there's, a, there's probably somewhere around 20% of the treatment who did not ever get a mentor, not only during those 18 months, but even moving forward. So um, you're talking about comparing a one group that 
isn't fully mentored, if you will, the treatment group, and the other group that isn't fully not mentored in a substantial way. So not surprisingly, given that, to use a technical, not really, term, uh, the, the, the messiness uh, and the noisiness is a better term of the data. Um, when we looked at records, uh, those records outcomes, we didn't find a lot. Um, want to make sure I say this accurately as I summarize for you. We did find um, a trend and it wasn't significant, but certainly was suggestive. Maybe something's going on there for receiving a post-secondary degree, being more likely for the group that was tagged, you know, to, to receive a mentor and, you know, part of the original treatment group. Um, but otherwise, uh, you know, th th those arrests and uh, the other um, uh, attending post-secondary uh, outcomes did not come about. So what we then did was, uh, in a, it's a slightly less uh, or you know, significantly less, depending on your perspective, rigorous analysis, but we did it as rigorously as we could do using best standards. We took those we identified those uh, youth who we had evidence that they had at least a one-year big brothers, big sisters mentoring relationship. So one year or longer. So not only did they have a mentor, but it also lasted at least a year. And, it, and many of you uh, listening are probably familiar with some of the research that suggests one year uh, for big brothers, big sisters and like programs as, a, as not a magic threshold, but certainly it seems as if that's a point where you start to see more uh, benefits accrue and even sometimes potentially harm for, for the shorter term ones. And that some of that research actually came out of the, uh, the, this, the, the, the 18 months of data collected in the original phase of this study. So um, when we look at that group, who whether you were originally signed to the control or the treatment, uh, we kind of put that aside and said, either way, did you get a, uh, a one-year relationship as best we can discern? And then we controlled for a whole host of things that we had that the researchers who did a marvelous job, by the way, and this was public-private venture. So apropos for Carla to be uh, you know, in, in the lead on, on the follow-up uh, of this research. And lo and behold, we did find then that those who had the one-year uh, or more relationship we're more likely to have gone on to uh, attend a post-secondary institution, so college, uh, four-year, two-year college. And we also found that that those youth with the one-year-plus matches were uh, had fewer uh, total offenses. And so the other outcomes I mentioned, you know, for getting a degree or particular types of offenses did not come out, but that we thought was interesting. And, and we, you know, we thought that was uh, something to take note of. And um, I think we're going to talk about this later, but we also found some evidence of some group variation in these analyses where there were some youth with those one-year matches where that, that was where the action seemed to be happening more on some of these outcomes. So first of all, I think it's fascinating that, you know, not surprising that in order to get the benefits out of mentoring, you actually have to have the experience of being mentored. And in this program, you know, there's a minimum threshold of that, that that the program would expect to see in order for you to really get what you're supposed to get out of it. And I think it's heartening that, you know, you didn't find it for every outcome you you were looking at, but the ones that you mentioned around degree attainment and, and avoiding 
you know, some criminality later in life, those are important. Those are our big ones, right? And so I think it's just a reminder to practitioners to whatever kind of the minimum duration of time in your program is that it's really important that young people get the experience that they and their their parents are are expecting. I think that uh, you know goes without saying, but sometimes we we forget it. I think. Um, I feel like though you also found that there were some some groups of those young people within that kind of one year. You know, I got the match I was expecting group that did better than others. So, could you talk a little bit about that? What came out for us, and uh, as Carla mentioned, you know, some of our analyses continue to be fine tuned. So, all of these have that asterisk, but it's a, a fairly clear pattern for youth who are racial ethnic minorities, and that uh, you know was either African-American or Hispanic. And that was, I'm you know ballparking it here, maybe a little more than half the sample. Now that would be different today. It would be more probably, you know, I don't know, three quarters of the sample, two thirds to three quarters. But at the time, uh, Big Brothers Big Sisters had a higher percentage of, of white uh, European-American youth. But uh, for that half or so that were uh, youth of color, it was those youth compared to their their, their non-one-year mentored counterparts controlling for where they started this whole journey and in, in our tracking of them over time from the original, when they were rolled in the research, their personal family circumstances. The minorities, uh, racial ethnic minority youth, showed less likelihood of having an adult property offense and less uh, less uh, fewer number of total offenses. And for a while, we were also finding a significant difference on educational outcomes. That's kind of as we kind of further tried to you know, clarify those data, not not coming out. But but there seemed to be a fairly discernible pattern that the youth who one could, I think, easily without, I don't think probably getting much argument from the folks listening to this podcast, argue um, are in a position uh, of facing particular um, challenges within our society with you know, the kind of ongoing you know, historical and institutional issues around racism, not to mention all the, the more interpersonal manifestations that continue to this day to be prevalent in parts of the lives of, of youth of color and, and adults of color, um, that uh, I found it to be uh, heartening to see that this intervention primarily, or large part, these were white mentors, right? Um, working with those youth, um, that 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 there there was a benefit there that that appeared to come through in the data, and it certainly wasn't the case that they benefited less, right? Um, that that much I feel confident saying, and and I think the evidence is that they, they may have benefited more, and that that this this kind of protective influence of having a caring adult outside of one's family, not not surprisingly, but you could also see it the other way. Um, uh, seem to have some added, if anything, added uh, value for, for the youth of color. Great. Thank you, David. So, Carla, I want to pick back up here with you and, and talk a little bit about the other thing that you looked at. I know you looked at you know who got the one year of mentoring and, and did that make a difference, but you also were concerned about kind of the quality of the relationships that they were in and wanted to explore whether being in a match that you enjoyed and liked and and felt was good at the time, whether that uh, had any difference in in these long term outcomes. So, could you talk a little bit about the role that relationship quality played in these findings years and years later? 
Sure. So in addition to the one year or longer variable that David talked about, we also created a variable representing what we termed high quality relationships. And this approach was based on research suggesting that not only are longer lasting relationships more beneficial for youth, but higher quality mentoring relationships are also more beneficial. So we were only able to create this variable for those who completed our adult survey. And it combined reports of both the length of their match, so if it was one year or longer, and adult reports of having felt very close, so having a score of at least 75 out of 100 on closeness to their mentor when they were matched. So, you know, adults looking back saying, this is how close I felt to my mentor at the time. So 212 of our 313 survey participants had a Big Brothers Big Sisters relationship and 61 of them, so a little under 30%, reported both long-lasting and high-quality relationships. So we tested associations between this variable and the outcomes assessed in our adult survey, which, as David noted, really covered a wide variety of, of outcomes. Our, our results were really promising, I think. Um, so those adults who reported having had a high-quality mentoring relationship were less likely to have been arrested as a juvenile, less likely to have reported stealing during adulthood. They reported higher levels of grit, emotional, psychological, and social well-being, and physical health, and they also reported less alcohol use during adulthood. So again, these analyses are less rigorous than those comparing the original treatment and control groups. Um, those youth who were able to develop long-lasting and high-quality relationships with their mentors may have also had characteristics that enabled them to go to college and avoid crime and succeed in many of the ways that we examined. Um, so this caveat really needs to be kept in mind when considering these results. But despite that, we feel that these are really promising findings and they do capture more of what we mean by you know, the mentoring experience that youth and parents are really hoping for when they sign up for the program. So. Thanks, Carla. I think, you know, that's that's good news to my ears because I feel like what you've found here is something that confirms kind of the the truisms of our field, which is for mentoring to be the effective intervention we would like it to be. Young people have to kind of be able to get the duration of, of a relationship that they uh, want, perhaps, and and then it's got to be enjoyable. It's got to be something that they find value in and find some kind of satisfaction and you know, fun and and that mutuality that that folks talk about. Um, so I, I feel like, in some ways, you guys are making the case here for you know, high quality mentoring does have this impact. And certainly, you rattled off there a pretty impressive list of ways in which people that said I had this quality relationship. Um, it did seem like it it had an impact in a lot of areas. I'd like to get away from kind of the findings here for a minute and and talk about this uh, in terms of the implications of it. Uh, I know that you were both hoping to find perhaps starker differences between, you know, the mentored youth and the, the non-mentored uh, from that intent to treat kind of perspective. Uh, but, you know, what you found here is a little more subtle and a little more nuanced and kind of tied to these notions of duration or, or quality of the experience. So I guess my question is, what would you say to those of us in the field, whether they're practitioners, policymakers, funders? Uh, I think it's always 
challenging when you look long term like this. You you know you may find bad news for the field, right? You may find, you know, you know geez, these results weren't what we were hoping for. Um, so what would you what would you say to folks? Do you feel like you found some good news here for for youth mentoring? I feel we 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 have um, more, more than not, you know, and I think you know characterizing it in the ways that both you and, and Carla have, I think is is you know very much you know. On point, without overselling, you know what what's there. But you know, it's not a guarantee that you'll find anything. Uh, they, there's been uh, is a case in point with the Dare uh, program for uh, substance use prevention. There was the thought, well, you know, these kids didn't look a lot different, uh, different hardly at all when they got the program or a random group that didn't uh, in middle school, uh, you know, uh, in early high school, let's follow them into young adulthood. And maybe there'll be this kind of sleeper effect, right? When they really get in situations where, you know, risky substance use becomes more of a, of a potentiality um, uh, for them, potent, you know, just that's kind of the line of reasoning. They found nothing, right? There were still no differences between the groups. Uh, and when, you know, it's, it's not at all uncommon to, to find little uh, or, or none, or even sometimes, as you mentioned, things that go the other way. So I think, you know, kind of norming it against what success has been there uh, in, in other programs uh, that have been followed up, um, I think that's important. And I think particularly for community-based programs that are, they're, they're done as is in the community with the funding that's available, right? And these are not, you know, grant-supported programs where there's all sorts of hovering over, you know, the participants to make sure they come to sessions or the mentors are following through, you know, in this kind of somewhat artificial kind of way. It's very much these were programs out there operating in the real world um, under real world constraints and, and still we're able, where, where we know from, from research and prevention programs in general, the effects tend to drop off considerably. We call those effectiveness trials. And the eff- efficacy is when you have everything kind of under your control more about implementation and so forth. And so, so I think especially normed against kind of that, that benchmark, it, it, it's encouraging. I do think that this, and I'm being self-serving here, that these 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 findings really call um, out the need for a, a, an updated accounting uh, as as programs like Big Brothers Big Sisters have matured and you know, continued to enhance their their uh, their quality and, uh, and deliverables over time. Their their average match link uh, is is now somewhere you know. Well, more than two years and going toward three in some cases, um, that's skewed by some really long-term ones. But they're also, even over the last five, six years, showing it, you know, an increase in the percentage that make it to that one-year mark. I think they're up to maybe 70% now relative to the 50 that we, we saw in the treatment group uh, here. So, you know, it would be wonderful. Uh, we, wouldn't, we really weren't able, even though we <laughs> were able to, in some ways, you know, you know, get the full picture. It's not the full picture that might be occurring now um, as much, where those longer multi-year relationships and perhaps even uh, the quality of the relationships, even if they're not lasting longer, uh, may be better, uh, which we have, you know, reason to believe could be the case as well. So there's enough here to 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 uh, 
justify further investment. And thankfully for Carl and I, and hopefully for the field as well, uh, Laura and John Arnold Foundation has funded a trial, a uh, randomized control trial of Big Brothers Big Sisters community-based mentoring program that we have underway now and uh, will involve about 2,500 youth if we're successful in reaching our goal across um, around 15 different affiliates. Uh, so it'll be larger in a broader cross range of affiliates. And most importantly, we're going to be following the youth over, um, uh, the, the control youth will not be mentored for four years. It, 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 you know that there that, that's that's the that's the arrangement right is is in the interest of finally getting a clearer picture of what a fuller dose of a program like big Brothers big sisters looks like that uh, making this one-time strategic investment and the organization has been great in partnering as with affiliates because as many of them said it gives them heartburn <laughs> you know even with all the appropriate you know, uh, here are alternative resources in the community and you still have waitlist activities. It's heartburn for them to, you know, they're to, to not be able to serve all the youth, but that come to their door during this study participation, even though they can serve a similar number, still some uh, are going to be, you know, uh, with forewarning uh, in that control group. So that'll be a long-term uh, process, but we do feel that uh, what we have here, and, and, and again, I think that was part of our ability to get that funding. Thank you, David. I That was very helpful. And I feel like I heard a few things in there that our audience can take away from that, particularly the practitioners that are listening. Uh, one is to remember that what's being followed up on here is mentoring as it looked in Big Brothers, Big Sisters, you know, over 20 years ago. And our field has evolved a lot. The practices that are in play are modernized, and I think we're doing better work now than we were 20 years ago. Not that it was bad, but you know we have evolved as a field. So I think there's reason to believe that into the future, we might find you know things that are even stronger than this. I also heard a note in there, though, that, you know, as you said, these programs are messy. These were real world conditions. This wasn't an idealized implementation, you know, in kind of a sterile lab environment. This is the messiness of this work. And yet, you know, for, for whatever inefficiencies that might bring, you still see this impact in the trajectory of people's lives years later. And I feel like there's a little bit of a hint there for practitioners that they should be conscientious in their work to do the best work they can, but they don't have to be perfect in order to have an impact. And I feel like that's advice we give mentors all the time. Uh, showing up is is half the battle. No one expects you to be perfect. And and so I think maybe this will give practitioners a little bit of breathing room too to just be like, you know, we're going to do the best we can and, and trust that we will have that impact. I want to ask you guys just to wrap up here to kind of just, you know, step back from even the policy implications and is this good news for our field and just talk a little bit about kind of the human side of this. You know, you've talked to all of these people that many years ago went through this odd relationship when they were kids. And for some of them, it went well. For others, maybe it was, you know, another disappointing relationship in a, in a string of them in a, a childhood that was, you know, perhaps chaotic or, or troubling. And I guess my question is based on hearing from all of these people, what, what did they kind of say at a personal level about this experience um, beyond the outcomes you know, what, 
what carried forward for them later in life? Did you hear any anecdotes from folks that kind of really stuck with you? I I would say that I've been really impressed reading the open-ended responses to our survey questions that generally these relationships really matter. So adults remember them, even 20 years later, even if they were short, and even if, in some cases, particularly if they weren't very positive. So my sense is that what matters is being there, sticking around no matter what, and just being a positive, supportive presence in these youth's lives. I didn't get the sense that these volunteers had to have kind of PhDs in the art of high-quality mentoring, but youth and now adults appreciated their just being a positive presence in their life. Many of the participants talked about how valuable these relationships were or that they regret not really appreciating their mentor at the time or showing their appreciation, or unfortunately, that they still remember their mentor leaving without a trace. These mentors were important to these youth. Um, Renee Spencer will be taking a closer look at these quotes from the survey and lend her stellar expertise to analyzing these responses and really just looking more carefully for patterns in their responses. But this is the sense that that I got just taking a step back. I don't know if you have anything to add, David. I, I think you've captured uh, it really well, Carla. And, and we really went into this, I did at least, with a real question in my mind as to whether folks would recall that, that, you know, when they, when we could tell from the records in particular that they indeed had been matched with the big brother or big sister, would they recall that, especially when, you know, it was relatively short lived uh, as a, you know, substantial proportion were. And yet it's been much more the exception where uh, our records suggest that, yes, indeed, there was a, a relationship, but perhaps not a long-term one, and, and the person's just drawing a blank. That's really been the exception. And parents, I would add, have also uh, you know, shared uh, the ones we've contacted for the reasons we noted earlier for uh, contacting the, the now adult youth participants. And uh, they, they've spoken you know, quite passionately often you know, about the importance of what this, what this meant uh, for uh, for their children, uh, by and large, I think positive, but also uh, you know to mirror the the now adult, but w- at the time youth perspective, they you know one parent in particular, I recall, she had to, you know for her report, you know two children in the study, uh, one treatment, one control, which isn't something we're doing in the new study. We're not trying to, we don't want to create that kind of dynamic in a family. But at the time, it was just, it's how things were done. I'm sure there was a rationale for it. She feels and uh, indicated that, that the one youth who's had, a, in her view, a very positive and rewarding life trajectory and, and had gotten a mentor, that that's made all the difference. And she feels that had her other child had the benefit of that experience, uh, you know, that, that uh, his life might have turned out uh, much more favorably. I'll just share one other quick anecdote. It was maybe only a couple, uh, very small number, but it, it was notable that said this in the open-ended comments. It said, it taught me that there's people out there in the world who really care about others and will do things even when it's no obvious gain for themselves. And I thought that was really just interesting, right? That it wasn't so much what they did for them directly, but that they, 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 they served as a messenger, you know, that there's caring people out there. 
beyond your immediate life circumstances. And so there were some pretty neat things and it wasn't the, the main thrust of what we were doing. We didn't have hour long interviews with these folks, right? We gave them a couple opportunities to, to jot down notes, but they, they were quite willing to do so. And I, I would encourage practitioners to remember just as us as researchers need to, that when you're asking young people to reflect on these things at the, in the moment and at that stage of their development, um, you know, we're really uh, going to see a very limited picture of what probably in retrospect um, they're able to then later uh, reflect on and appreciate about about what they're experiencing uh, within a mentoring program. Wow. Thank you very much, both of you, for for kind of sharing those thoughts. And, you know, David, those those anecdotes that you just shared are, are very powerful. Um, let's end on the note that, you know, the one person said, you know, this mentor was in some ways a messenger for the caring adults of the world, right? I feel like that's a pretty powerful message to share uh, at this point in time. So thank you both for taking the time to talk with us about this study. Um, and it's just really groundbreaking work. And I hope that it inspires others to track down their alumni and, and do similar things in terms of seeing how their lives have turned out. Um, I really hope our podcast audience found this to be you know, insightful and, and fun and, and you know, really broke down your work for them in a, a new and a way that's you know, perhaps a little more accessible to them. I just want to remind our audience that we've got many more episodes in this series uh, that'll be coming out throughout the fall of 2018 and then more into 2019. So keep an eye on the NMRC website for new recordings. And as always, if you want to make some program improvements or need help with a challenge your mentoring program is facing, the NMRC offers free technical assistance and consultation nationwide. All you need to do is request it through the website and we'll pair you up with one of our experts around the country and, and get you the help that you need to improve your program. So on behalf of OJJDP and the National Mentoring Resource Center, uh, thanks again for joining us. And remember, you know, research may seem definitive, but I think we really decide together what's truly meaningful in this field through dialogue and through open hearts and minds and through asking good questions. So thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time on Reflections on Research. <laughs>